just, uh, I don't mean to chew up your time, uh, Julia, but just remind me, Jordan, when um, when you were Minister of Justice AG, what were those years? 2018 and 2019, I'm thinking. Right, okay. Would have been just the first part of 20. I was only Minister of Justice for like a year and a half, probably, or like thereabouts, something like that, yeah. Right. Yeah, so I just missed you because I, I left Justice for another department in late uh, 2016, early 2017. Yeah. You must have been sitting there going, come on, I'm a lawyer. This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Hello, and thank you for tuning into The Every Lawyer. I'm Julia Tetro-Provenci. The CBA has sections for every area of practice, from law students to judges, to the overworked immigration section, to criminal law. And they all need people like you to get involved and contribute your skills. Applications to join the CBA section executive are still open until the end of May. Et nous avons aussi besoin de personnes qui parlent français, donc vraiment n'hésitez pas à vous inscrire. My guest today are both longtime CBAers Tom Ulliet and Jordan Brown. This is actually truly a pan-Canadian episode here. I'm in Quebec City. Tom, you are in the Yukon. And Jordan, you are in PEI. You two have quite a lot in common. Both lawyers from smaller communities, both in public service and serving those same communities for many years now, not only in a legal capacity, but Jordan, you held public office in PEI from 2015 to 2019, and you served as Minister of Education, Minister of Justice, and Attorney General, or AG, as we say. While you, Tom, in your three periods as UConn's Deputy Minister of Justice, slash Deputy Attorney General, you worked for six ministers from two different political parties, serving directly under and working closely with six different Jordans, if we can say that. It goes on with the parallels, and I can include myself in this last one. We all got our start in the CBA in the Young Lawyers section. We have invited you both here today to talk about lawyers in positions of leadership. Jordan and Tom, uh, you have agreed to join us. Among other things, yes, to talk to each other, but also uh, to encourage our members and listeners and the friends of our listeners and the friends of our members, well, everybody actually, um, to get involved in our community and with your association. So Canadian Bar Association Sections Executive Elections. Maybe, well, we can start off with the very beginning of it all, which is to you both. What did you want to be when you grew up? Who's ready to? Yeah. You gotta go back in the, in the archives, eh? I want you to say you want to be a lobster fisherman or a potato farmer. Yeah, I don't think, neither of those I don't, I, I don't think was there. A truck driver was on the list and uh, heavy equipment operator and those kinds of things. But no, um, lawyer was actually on the list from a very young age. So here's a funny little story. So my dad, my dad was a lawyer and, uh, or I guess is a lawyer. Have you ever stopped being a lawyer? I don't know, but, uh, he was the director of legal aid for the province, uh, throughout his entire career and just retired a few years ago. And so anyway, when I was younger, dad was cooking dinner and, uh, which was not totally typical at that point in time, but anyway, that's how it was in our house. And, uh, so anyway, I kind of piped up, I was probably five or six at the time. And I said, you know, Dad, I think I'd like to be a lawyer, but I don't think I could be. 
And, oh yeah, George, what's why is that? I don't know how to cook, Dad. I don't think I could cook dinner. And uh, no way. <laughs> Because that, that's really something you need to know, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there you go. You know, I kind of got it honestly a little bit and, you know, was interested by the, the legal dramas on TV and whatnot, although not much of what we do actually really relates that much to uh, what you'd see on TV. But uh, I think amongst other things, uh, career in law was something that I'd always seen myself doing. When did you decide public service? Because that's an all, all other thing. Yeah, so, so here's another little insight and a quirky story. So I'll never forget my uh, my interview for my current firm. Uh, and I can remember walking in and uh, the two ladies that were doing the interview, one of whom actually is the chief of staff to the premier right now, say to me, oh, you know, and this is October of first year now, mind you. So we're barely class. I don't think we'd handed in an assignment yet. Uh, they say to me, oh, well, what areas are you interested in? I said, oh criminal and uh, corporate commercial law. And uh, they just kind of snickered and laughed and said, oh yeah, okay. Uh, he really knows <laughs> what he's doing here. So uh, anyway, and, and ironically then, that's what I did for the first five to eight years of my practice. I did a fair bit of uh, uh, criminal law and a slower started into a corporate commercial practice and then uh, kind of moved a little bit away from the criminal law uh, as I moved further on into my career. So so there you go. It, everything is possible. Um, and so and just to be clear, I was never a like a, a public servant, I guess, in the true sense. I never got my paycheck directly from uh, the government of Prince Edward Island or whatever. And um, uh, politics kind of chose me. I ran uh, thinking I had about zero chance to win. Uh, I was running against the leader of the Conservative Party at the time, um, who was a great guy. and. Um, thought that they might do pretty well in the election. And I think really he spent so much time campaigning provincially that uh, um, he had uh, kind of done himself a disservice in his own district and I managed to squeak in there. So um, anyway, uh, not to say that uh, I didn't want to do it or anything like that. I just didn't ever expect to win. And there I ended And up. there you are. And you know how to cook. <laughs> or maybe. Well. <laughs> <Not> there yet. <laughs> and you, Tom. Well, some similarity to uh, Jordan's story, just a little bit. Uh, I knew from a young age that I wanted to be a lawyer. I'm not sure why. There were no lawyers in uh, my family or anybody uh, that was even remotely connected to the law. But I think I was probably influenced by popular culture, in particular, as Jordan said, uh, shows on TV. And I thought, well, that would... Uh, that would be a fun job to do. It looks like it looks like they have lots of fun. It looks like they get to dress really well. Yeah, they sure do. It's prestigious. It, uh, all lawyers seem to be rich, um, you know, on and on and on. So that, that was from age 12 onwards. But prior to that, I was thinking seriously, and I'm sure glad I didn't go this route, I was thinking seriously, I almost don't want to admit this in a public forum, but my family all knows it. I wanted to be a Catholic priest because the influence of my father, who had studied for the seminary and spent a few years in the seminary and checked out uh, uh, just before he became a deacon. But a lot of his friends were priests, and so that was quite an influence uh, on me. But 
around 12 or 13, uh, certain things were happening in my body that changed uh, my thinking uh, quite dramatically that I was no longer interested in, <laughs> in, 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 uh, in a religious vocation. And I, I probably would have been terrible at it anyways. And it was really uh, since age 12. And as Jordan might have fallen into politics, I won't say I fell into the law because it was always a goal of mine through junior high school and high school. And certainly when I entered the University of Calgary, I was very keen on getting decent marks so that I could uh, I'd have a, a good chance of getting uh, getting into um, getting into law school. But it was I, um, I was certainly always kind of interested more in uh the social and social justice and social sciences end of academia. And that's sort of where I focused um, my undergrad anyways. And uh, it was always kind of, I was less interested in the corporate commercial tax and you might say the, the bread and butter law and more interested in things that raise sort of big societal issues, although I'm very happy that I took civil procedure and criminal law and and, and corporate law and uh, contracts. Of course, you have to take those courses as a matter, of course, because they're invaluable, not just in day-to-day life, but uh, certainly in uh, any form of the practice of law. Yeah. And, and same question, public service. When did that happen? Well, again, I had nobody in my immediate family who was in public service. Uh, so there was no real role models there. I had uh, I had uh, aunts and uncles in Ottawa. I grew up in southwestern Ontario. I had aunts and uncles in Ottawa who we saw regularly who were federal public servants, but I didn't really, that wasn't a huge influence to me, even though they seemed to have a nice life and lifestyle and all of that. And and um, really, even coming out of law school, when I was applying for article and I was applying at private firms, and it was only when I started to think that I would like to go north because I had lived in the West. I'd lived in central Canada, but I'd never been north. And I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can't article in the north. Uh, all my friends, this is the University of Ottawa Law School, a great law school, by the way, um, were all um, applying to work in uh, Vancouver, Calgary, uh, uh, well, Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal. And I thought, no, I'm going north. So I applied in Yellowknife and, um, and Whitehorse, and I guess not only did Whitehorse choose me, but uh, the place that hired me was the government of Yukon. And I thought, okay, this is a one-year contract. Uh, it's a two-way contract, meaning I'm going to Whitehorse for a year. I'm going to do my articles to the government, and I'm getting out of Dodge. I'm going south and probably to Calgary and uh, work in the oil and gas area. But boy, uh, uh, during that period of articling, I realized that uh, – uh, working in government was a uh, fascinating and satisfying place to uh, to be as a student and later as a lawyer. I mean, that's the kind of thing I wished I had done, you know, doing my articling up in the north. Never happened, unfortunately, but uh, very interesting. And now going to the CBA. How did it happen that you ended up involved in the CBA, Tom? I know for sure that, well, we've heard that you joined the CBA shortly before starting law school. So you joined it like a long time ago. And also you were awarded CBA Louis Saint Laurent Award, which is our association's highest award recognizing a lifetime 
of dedicated service to the CBA and the Canadian legal community. So first, congratulations. Why did you start with the CBA and what kept you all these years? I think I think I probably didn't become a CBA member until my first year of law school, but but I thought of applying uh, to become a CBA member. It's true before I was in law school because at the time my parents were living in Windsor, Ontario, and University of Windsor has had a, a law school for a long, long time. And uh, over Christmas uh, one year, when I was I was living in Cal- living and going to school in Calgary, and but my folks were in Windsor, Ontario. Uh, I was doing some studying at, at the university and in the library at the law school. And I saw a little bull, I saw a bulletin board with money sort of tear off things where you could apply to be a uh, member of the bar association. And so that was my first image. I thought, well, I want to be a lawyer. Uh, maybe this is my ticket. I'll apply to be a CBA member. But I don't think I actually became a member for another uh, year or two after that, uh, probably in, in uh, 82 when I, when I started, uh, uh, started law school and and you know pretty quickly uh, it became clear that uh, uh, you know the CBA was a major force within Canada's legal community uh, both even in the small legal community that, that is uh, that was and still is uh, Whitehorse Yukon and and of course uh, nationally and, and 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 to be associated with uh, with with the CBA and to be meeting other lawyers and working together on common things, uh, it was just too good to uh, pass up. And I remember at the time, one of the things that was a draw for me was with your membership, especially as a student, it was so cheap. Uh, with your membership, you got a hard copy. Now it's hard to imagine a hard copy of the Canadian Bar Review. And that in itself, I thought, was worth the price of admission. Oh, my God, I get the Canadian Bar Review, whatever it was, quarterly or bi-monthly. Love that. So that's a good technique, Ben. <laughs> and, and you, Jordan? Well, I was just going to say, I think when, when we were coming through law school, what you got, I think the membership might have been 20 bucks of memory serves at the time, which was a tough sell when you were going to university. Where they got you was the CBIA reps. Uh, I went to law school in Fredericton. At UMB, uh, the CBIA reps would, of course, come in and they'd be trying to sell you insurance and whatever. And so they put on these relatively kind of fancy things where you'd have, you know, some snacks and or a more substantive uh, uh, type meal and maybe a drink or two. And uh, so you'd be doing the math. Am I going to get my $20 worth out of these events or uh, how will that work? And uh, anyway, so I think that was my introduction to the CBA I uh, was as a law student at UMB, and um, uh, I think that was it. You know, there were there were some uh, kind of insurance and planning aspects um, uh, that would have drawn me in. Now, that having been said, I mentioned my father was a lawyer previously, and he was a member of the Canadian Bar Association. Um, and so we would have started to get, like, I started driving when I was 16, and uh, we would have gotten our insurance through the... I can't remember. I think it was TD Mosh Monix uh, through the Canadian Bar Insurance Association um, back to that time. So I knew full well what the some of the advantages were right from the age of 16, if I didn't know it before then, um, and kind of kept it uh, going when the opportunity arose for me. And I think actually in a very similar way to Tom, this didn't come up. Uh, I thought it might, but uh, anyway, very early in my practice, I can't remember exactly when it was two things happened. I can't remember whether the first was CBA or whether it was the Law Society, but 
every year at our midwinter meeting, they do uh, kind of an homage to the youngest lawyer and oldest lawyer practicing. And so I was the youngest at the meeting and my dad was the oldest or at least the longest practicing and to qualify that showed up for the meeting or that would commit to showing up for the meeting. Uh, Anyway, so long story short, going along with that, you kind of got the tap on the shoulder. Hey, would you be interested in signing up for it? I can't remember totally what it was at the time, but the long story short was I ended up signing up at at a given point in time to be the CBA Young Lawyers Rep for Prince Edward Island. And then as a result of that, I did two terms, I think is that, um, and then became like entered into the uh, rotation to become the Young Lawyers Forum chair uh, eventually. And I think it was about a five-year rotation at the time. And so I can remember uh, it was Beth McGrath, who was the previous chair, lovely person. Uh, and Beth had said to me, Jordan, you should really think about uh, – uh, being the CBA Young Lawyers Chair at some point in time. It's really a great gig. You get five or six paid trips. And she mentioned, you know, you get to go to the opening of the courts in the UK and to the American Bar Association event and the opening of the courts in Quebec, Supreme Court dinner and blah, 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 blah. And I'll maybe just kind of finish with this. My year was the year we did Rethink. And I got to go to Ottawa six times between January and May of that year. And I ended up stuck in either Ottawa or Montreal three of those times for an entire weekend. So there you go. All the perks were gone. And it was just the biweekly three-hour-long finance committee meetings that I got to go to. In great Ottawa. Oh, that's so great. (laughs) And you know what, Ted, there again, Julia, um, uh, we've um, we've crossed over again. Jordan and I have crossed over in any event. In that uh, uh, very early on, I get sort of uh, by a CBA mentor, sort of got pushed in the direction of the uh, young lawyers. And uh, like Jordan, I was the young lawyers chair for uh, UConn for two or three years. And it just like Jordan, eventually got on to the national executive of what was then called the Young Lawyers Conference. You probably remember that, Jordan, uh, but uh, the more better and more modern term, the forum. And uh, as Jordan said, it it was a a great group to be involved with, uh, not the least of which uh, being uh, the year that you're president. And yes, the international relations that are were then very prominent uh, for young lawyers. But, you know, that, that, that idea of being aware of young lawyer issues, I know, Jordan, I bet you'd echo this, being aware of young lawyer issues from coast to coast and, and working towards the betterment of young lawyers, the betterment of the profession, and hopefully the betterment of society. But it was a, uh, I guess anybody who's been a member of a service club, not that I want to say the CBA is a service club, but anybody who's been involved in a national association would probably have a similar story. Just so many opportunities to help the association, uh, to help yourself and uh, and help individuals, uh, members. But yeah, Young Lawyers was a terrific experience. But I think, Jordan, uh, you and I must have been uh, maybe a generation apart there. <laughs> but I think you make a good point. I feel like CBA about mentorship is so important. And I feel like all the programs they have and just what your story tell as well. And, and that a bit leads me to, because I think we understand why you kept, you, you, you stay with the CBA, you, you talk 
about it with so much passion. And But if we want people to get involved, what would you say you think CBA should be most proud of? And I said already mentorship, so I'm really sorry I took one big there. But if you have anything else in mind that you'd like to, you know, to encourage people to be like, come on, join in. Yeah, I think, you know, and look, for me, honestly, and this was a major reason why I did get involved in the first, and not good trips necessarily, but more, um, I'll say the camaraderie. Um, yeah. You know, like in a certain way, practicing law traditionally has been a bit of a lonely experience. That's probably changed fundamentally, even in the time that I've been here, there's been a, a lot of change. Like I have a painting on my wall over there and it's uh, a lawyer in a pretty lonely looking setting with his client there. And it says a lawyer's time is his stock and trade. And he's basically there with the big quill imparting wisdom on some poor soul that's in to see him. And, you know, the implication of that often has been that uh, maybe that as a lawyer, you'd be kind of an educated person that could maybe help people that did not have education um and so you were by virtue of that uh you know a little bit kind of like the priest or like a, basically a leader in the community but that would mean you wouldn't have necessarily a whole lot of peers um that you could lean on you know and so anyway i think that's fundamentally changed and the cba has been obviously crucial in that uh over the course of the last number of decades but whether it be through that or whether it be through Uh, some of the, you know, the unique advocacy pieces that, uh, you know, we would kind of take on as the CBA, you know, you have the ability to uh, lean on others in your profession. I think that like, there's a lot to be said for that, that really, you can't, it's an intangible that you can't necessarily, until you know, you don't know, I guess would be what I would say about it. And, uh, you know, I think it's a pretty major thing. It was a major thing for me kind of earlier in my practice. I really love that because, and we've had a lot of episodes on mental health. And I think we, everybody says, you know, reach out and reach out to you, to, to your people and, and lawyers don't tend to do that. So I don't even know if it has evolved that much. I think a lot of lawyers still feel very lonely and maybe not as much as in the painting, which I really like the <laughs> description, but it's a very good point. I, I would echo everything that's been said, all the points uh, Jordan made uh, for sure. Uh, I know we'll come back to this later, but uh, one of the realities of the practice of law and including in, in public sector law, it's a it's a high risk profession. We think of farming and fishing and working in the oil and gas industry and maybe even factory work of being high risk jobs, at least physically, but uh, certainly uh, uh, mentally and psychologically, it is a high risk profession. And, you know, we're just starting to. Uh, realize that in, in, in recent years, but that doesn't really answer your question. I'm sure we'll come back to that. I think one of the things about that, the CBA that, that, uh, but that really attracted me is that, you know, just as the attorney general ministers of justice across the country, primary role is to, uh, you know, stand up for and be a beacon for the uh, rule of law and the proper administration of uh, justice. Well, that's exactly what the CBA does too. And, you know, so at the 10,000 foot level, sort of being, uh, being associated uh, with that sort of goal and objective and vision is, is, was always a bit of a, uh, a light for me. And as a government lawyer, uh, certainly that it, it, it was there as well. 
you know, Jordan mentioned uh, colleagues and that you, uh, you I, I still say to people because of the CBA, I can go to any city in Canada and have a cup of coffee f- to, you know, text somebody and say, hey, Jordan, you want to go for a cup of coffee? Uh, now, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but through the CBA, you certainly meet people that from every jurisdiction and uh, from uh, most of the big cities. So I've always felt that what a great way to connect with people, to connect with other Canadians through this through this association that brings you together. Even if you're just going to talk about how badly the Toronto Maple Leafs are going to lose tonight. Oh my God, did I say that? You better edit this out, edit that out of the program. Uh, you know that you can you can connect with somebody and you'll have a, a common link. You might not talk about the law, you probably will, or the practice of law, but but you but you'll have these other other uh, links. The uh, and and I guess the third thing I would say on this, and, and again, Jordan said this in so many words. You meet some phenomenal people, phenomenal community people, people who are so that are involved with the CBA. Often they're not just involved with the CBA, they're very involved with their family. They're very involved with their community. They're very involved uh, at work. People who just um, see themselves as, uh, um, I know, I don't want to go, I don't mean this in a spiritual sense, but to be here to make their community, society a better place. And uh, I've always found that very, very uplifting. Love that. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And I think that I think it will definitely uh, encourage some people to join the CBA. But there's also something we wanted to talk about, which is because I don't often get to meet lawyers who have worked as public servants and or politicians. And I'm sure many people haven't as well. And I think this is the occasion also to talk about this. And well, first, maybe I'd like to know what do lawyers who are interested, you know, students or lawyers already who are accepted to the bar and who are interested in public careers need to be aware of and watch the do's and don'ts, I would say. Uh, is that to Jordan or is that to me? You can decide. <laughs> Go ahead, Jordan. It's your turn, Jordan. I've been talking too much. No, no, but this is nearer and dearer to you, I think. Uh, so I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about it. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I guess I would start by saying a law degree, uh, when you finish law school, you have an amazing skill set, you know. You probably went into law school with a lot of skills and a lot of ability and a lot of interests and talents. You come out of law school with a lot more. There's a common and traditional and, uh, and important and well-respected and critical pathway out of law school. And that is into the private practice of law because we need lawyers. We need lawyers for all the different services that, uh, that people uh, require just to function in their life. But, you know, there are there that that skill set uh, that you have can be put to use in so many different ways. You could be uh, you could be a journalist and covering the legal beat. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's you know, that that may seem a little bit out there. Somebody may say, well, why would I go to law school for that? But uh, so many different things. You could be a researcher. You could be a policy advisor. You could be a legislative drafter. You could be working at a legal think tank, uh, writing papers. Uh, and of course, uh, you could practice as a barrister or a solicitor in, in the public sector for a provincial or 
territorial or the federal federal government. So there's there's just a lot of roles uh, in the public sector for lawyers, even though it doesn't get quite the time and attention maybe that uh, uh, that the bigger firms uh, uh, like Jordan belongs to. Uh, but you know, I bet you if you went and spoke to uh, some of the lawyers who are working at the uh, PEI Department of Justice, you'd find some lawyers who are very, very happy and feel very privileged to be doing the kind of work that they're that they're doing. Um, and and I guess um, I guess in terms, I don't know if I have any do's or don'ts, but I, I will say that. Uh, one of the advantages, I think this is well known, of, of doing uh, public sector law is uh, work-life balance. There's more likely, I wouldn't say a guarantee, but more likely to be in a work to be able to manage your workload uh, a little bit better than if you're in uh, private practice. Um, uh, and the range of files that you get to work on as a government lawyer can be quite fascinating. You know, on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, clearly the compensation uh, is not at the same level, you might argue, as uh, certainly at the bigger law firms. But but on the other hand, uh, there's there's a lot of, just by virtue of being a public servant. Uh, there's a lot of benefits, you know, whether it's life insurance and disability and extended health care and all all manner of holidays and leave to say nothing of a pension plan and probably a defined benefits a pension plan. So and the last thing I'll say is that one of the advantages of working in the public sector is it gives you an opportunity to really understand how does government actually work? We know how the government works from a media point of view, because any hour of the day you can hear um, you can hear the pundits talking about what the government is doing or should be doing or can't do or or what have you. But you actually get to see how government works. You get to see how a large organization, how a bureaucracy, and, and Jordan would have seen this and probably maybe have pulled your hair out at days uh, at times. You know what it, what it's like to actually work and be part of a very large organization. Uh, and that, uh, you know, that attracts some people. And I suggest this attract even more people. So I, I think you're bang on on that last point. You know, Ida, it's an old adage, but if you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And I think that really, you know, people who, how do I want to say this? Like, I don't think anybody should... T- as they're going through law school, set out to say, I want to go work for government. Um, And that's not to say don't not want to go work for government, but, you know, from the perspective of somebody who's been through kind of government at the political and executive level, like I think of the lawyers that would have worked for the Department of Justice or would have gotten a paycheck from the Department of Justice and the, the variety of people that would be there would range from a crown prosecutor to a legal aid lawyer uh, to a legislative drafter uh, to uh, folks that were doing uh, policy work um, to the deputy minister uh, and so on and so forth, right? Like you can, and then we would have had a department kind of within the department that was basically like our own little law firm, legal services, most governments would have them. um, And they would, you know, kind of be like your line solicitors. Like if one of the departments needs help, they, they, on a legal issue, they generally would give them help. Even within government, the roles are like 
there's a crazy variety in terms of what you might find yourself doing. And so, um, you know, I think if I had kind of a matrix to think about how I would look at this, if I was starting over and, um, you know, it's, it's always tough to even think about things in those terms, but maybe I should start with this. There is opportunity in government, which there hasn't always been. When I was first starting out, it was very tough to get in. And, and I think there is tremendous opportunity there now in most governments. Certainly there is here, and I know there is in Atlantic Canada. But I think, you know, that what you would probably look at would be, is there a role that I would like to pursue? Like, I'd like to be a Crown prosecutor. I'd like to be a legal aid lawyer or whatever it might be. And there are lots of those unique opportunities. And then the next thing would be, how do you get there? And that's like a, a, a great benefit of the CBA. You know, you're at a CBA event, you can go, you know, uh, chat with the director of prosecutions or uh, the minister of justice or like whoever it might be. Um, and, you know, people generally are great to uh, to want to have a chat. Um, and, you know, like we see what Tom's like, like, he, he, like that's just what most CBA members are like. And they're willing to talk to you about what it's like and you can kind of figure it out and, and uh, have a discussion about what a pathway uh, might look like. Well, and, you know, something, Jordan, uh, that you just said uh, uh, was that CBA, uh, you know, can help you uh, with leadership skills, with uh, interpersonal skills, uh, can help to hone your advocacy skills. But one of the things that helped me, I'm a little off topic here, sorry, is it, it Jordan, you just mentioned it, speaking with um who you perceive perceive to be more important people. Maybe it's maybe it's an assistant deputy minister. Maybe it's a senior partner with McCarthy Tetro. Maybe it's a uh, a, a judge, uh, regardless of what level. And 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 through the CBA, and I would say through uh, government work, uh, you certainly learn that these. At, uh, to begin with, these people are just people, and uh, they're more than happy, most of them, to uh, to be uh, to be engaged. And uh, and and CBA gives you that platform, and I'd say gives you that uh, uh, confidence uh, to do that, which has many many side benefits. I'd say both in your uh, pra- practice life and your personal life. Yeah, I agree with that. I feel like every time I'm meeting people from the members of the CBA, I'm very impressed on the, of the resume and then I meet them in person and they're so chill and so open and so willing to talk to you. So that's that's very true. And I think it hasn't failed me once so far. So yeah, it's, it's very true. And and I think since I see the time running, I would love to also jump a bit because you've mentioned there's so many things that can be done in the government. So don't choose because, you know, or maybe choose one, or but there's so many things you can do and there's so many different positions that you can take as a lawyer. In our pre-talk correspondence, uh, Jordan, when we were talking about like what we were about to discuss here, you mentioned that the duties of government lawyers are distinct from lawyers working for the government on retainer. And that this distinction significantly impacts in in-house legal counsel services. So we, I didn't, we didn't ask more questions there because I was like, let's ask during the podcast. And I'd like to know why. <laughs> what is it? So you probably have the, I don't know if I should steal uh, the dean in this area's thunder. Uh, <laughs> you know, generally uh, speaking, I mean, We'll start from within government, there are different kind of aspects of the government. And I think most law students would have a pretty good handle on that. So I won't delve too far into it. But when you're a kind of a departmental solicitor or if you're, you're a legal services lawyer and you're providing an opinion, 
you need to be careful not to tread too far into the kind of the political realm. Um, and you need to be sure that, uh, um, you know, what you're doing is objective, I guess would be the first uh, piece. And that's not to say that private sector lawyers aren't necessarily objective, but, um, you know, when you're asked for an opinion, it, it, the, the opinion often takes the shape of the request. And so um, you have more latitude, but uh, as, a, as a line solicitor, there'd be certain areas that you couldn't go too far into. And um, I'm just trying to think. So w without going too far into breaching uh, cabinet confidentiality, you know, I, I'll give you one example of uh, an opinion that I have sought um, uh, as attorney general over the course of time. And this came out in the legislature, so it's not anything too uh, controversial or anything like that. But we were, uh, when I was in government, developing legislation in relation to a there was a, a a question that was going to be attached to an election uh, as to whether we wanted to change our legislative system or not, um, and there were a bunch of constitutional issues that surrounded that question and the legislation that really would underpin it. And so there probably were not going to be any clear answers on it. And you know, so we, in spite of that, we would have to put a bill forward, right? And so. Uh, doing that, I kind of had the interesting role, and this was right around the time uh, that Jody Wilson-Raybould and, and the uh, Prime Minister were into it with each other. I had the dual role of uh, both bringing this bill forward and giving advice to Cabinet on it. And so, you know, you really we needed to, to put together what was effectively a legal brief to say that the thing can stand on its two feet. And so, you know, from a political perspective, that needed to be the case and, you know, it also needed to be solid enough legally, uh, constitutionally, um, that the thing would pass muster. And so, you know, that would be something that I would have made a conscious decision for a number of different reasons to say we would get a private sector lawyer to give us an opinion on this bill and on the process that we would have gone through to arrive at the draft of the bill you know, such that you, you know, you can really put some definition, I think, around things and, and you would have somebody that would be prepared to uh, stand behind what they would have to say, both kind of on the political end of things, but also uh, uh, from the perspective of the of the, the idea that was put forward being the idea that we were putting forward. I'm not sure if that kind of, that may muddy the waters more than it clarifies them, but- no, no, no. <laughs> I'll say there are very unclear lines between one and That's the next. I think it shows. <laughs> well, and, and, and you know what? Uh, Jordan uh, points to something that, is, uh, that I always found very invigorating as a uh, government uh, litigator and, and, and solicitor was that the opportunity to work with uh, what you might call outside counsel or external counsel, that is to say, private bar lawyers who have been retained, just as Jordan has uh, indicated, to give advice uh, on a certain uh, subject or to do some of the more transactional 
work? And, you know, I'll, I'll bet, I don't know, I'm just speculating, Jordan probably knows the answer, when the bridge, the fixed link was being built, whatever that was, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I'll bet that there were some PEI government lawyers who were involved in that project working with outside uh, counsel. And I've certainly had that experience. And it's terrific to, to you're all lawyers, but you have that different perspective. And there's a role for external uh, outside uh, private bar lawyers to come in and give advice uh, either to a, uh, to a ministry, to a deputy minister, to a minister, to the premier, as the case may be. Um, so, uh, you know, what Jordan says is absolutely true. And, you know, one of the realities of being a government lawyer is that you have some duties, you have some legal duties that uh, are a little bit beyond if you're just in private practice. So, you know, Elizabeth Sanderson has written a book on this, but, uh, you know, you have a duty as a lawyer to your law society. You, you have a duty as a delegate of the attorney general to to uh, stand up for the rule of law and the proper administration of justice. And then you have a duty as a public servant, because as a public servant, you are an employee. And so you've got three layers of duties, which distinguish public sector lawyers a little bit uh, from the uh, from the private bar. Yeah, very much. I'll give you another quick example, too, Julia, that might explain it a little, a little more clearly than the one I gave previously. So when I was uh, both as, I guess, Minister of Education and, and Minister of Justice, but uh, this file was directed in my capacity as Minister of Education, we, being the Prince Edward Island government, were sued by the French language school board in the province. And uh, this has happened a number of different times across the country. Um, and, you know, we had to make the decision at a point in time, do we go outside for representation in relation to this suit or do we not? And, you know, the very real piece of your government lawyer is just, just you know, to Tom's point a minute ago, ultimately, your I shouldn't say your first job, but because it depends on how you order them. But um, in that capacity, in the defense of that lawsuit, you have to present a defense for your client. Um, and the very interesting question gets to be, well, who is your client? Yeah, it's a very good question. <laughs> yeah. And in yeah. a very direct way, you know, your client's the government of Prince Edward Island. Well, who's the government of Prince Edward Island? The government of Prince Edward Island represents the people of Prince Edward Island. Well, who are the people of Prince Edward Island? The people of Prince Edward Island are everybody on Prince Edward Island, a subset of which is... Uh, you know, the constituents of the French language school board. So you have to be very careful in terms of uh, whose interest you represent when you are a governmental solicitor and what kind of advice you give or what function you're going to take up, you know, when you're in that role. Um, and as Tom says, you have to overlay that then uh, as an officer of the court and, and uh, with other duties that you might have uh, and ensure that you're not trying to serve two masters at the same time. Uh, which is the classic problem that lawyers have to try to avoid, I guess you might say. I think that's a very good example. Yeah. And I can feel here that the dichotomy, I would say, on there just so many clients and who's the one that you're supposed to represent. It's very, yeah, but thank you. I think that was a hard question and uh, you both answered it very clearly. Another one that maybe is not as harder, but that also came up to our mind when we were thinking about this podcast and maybe it shows my lack of knowledge about this. So because you have both been either Deputy Minister of Justice or Deputy Attorney General or Minister of Justice, Attorney General, does this bring any problem? Does it bring any issue? Or was because I think the roles are very different. So I'd like to know a bit more about like, how is it? Is it, do you feel like those roles are totally different or not that much? And have you 
yeah, just how did you handle that when you had those roles? I don't know if my question is clear. <laughs> I think so. It's it's the it's really the Jody Wilson Raybol question. Like, you know, <laughs> where, where is the line drawn? You know, between uh, effectively being a cabinet minister, a member of cabinet, or a member of the executive council, and your duty to give advice. If I understand your question correctly. Yeah, you understand it correctly, and you put it in a pretty words, which is way better. <laughs> so, Tom, do you want to take this one first, or do you want me to? Sure, sure, I'll go. Well, I, I guess from a uh, from a departmental or ministry point of view, and particularly if you're a senior official within the uh, ministry, uh, and of course the most senior official would be the deputy minister. Um, it, it sure helps to be a willow rather than an oak tree because. Uh, Uh, you uh, and and I would say the best deputy ministers are more like a willow tree. And I don't mean that you bend the law out of shape. No, by any means. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you're working in the public service for any length of time, and especially if you're in a senior role, you're going to be serving different parties at different times. You're going to be serving individuals with very different uh, personalities. And uh, but but one of the common things is as a deputy minister, uh, you know that your minister is part of a government that's part of the Westminster system and that that minister has been elected on a platform, both their own commitments and the government, the the uh, party's commitments, the platform that they laid out during the election. And you know that your minister is going to have a mandate letter from the premier and your job as a deputy minister is to help the minister deliver uh, on that mandate. And that doesn't mean make you a politician by any means, but to sort of steer the ship that is the ministry to allocate resources, be they intellectual resources or people or human or financial resources to make sure that you're helping the minister achieve the goals that they've committed to uh, uh, to achieve to the to the premier and all the while and George would probably speak to this at length it's a relationship uh, you may really get along with the minister as a deputy and you might not get along with them so well but at the end of the day you're there to give advice they're the decision maker The, the ministry is not, for the most part, not the decision maker. They're the advice giver. And you want to give the best advice possible, the most objective advice possible. So at the end of the day, the minister and, and his or her staff can consider it and ultimately take it to uh, uh, to a treasury board or cabinet or as the case may be. So it's a really interesting uh, dynamic. And, uh, you know, I, I did work with half a dozen different people who served as a minister. And, um, you know, every relationship is different. And there's that period of time where you're sort of feeling each other out and trying to develop trust. Because if you don't have trust, if you don't trust the minister, the minister doesn't trust you, you've got nothing. And you're representing the whole department. So it is a very serious job. And it is one that uh, you want to put your, uh, as a deputy minister, your whole being into. And, and it's such a demanding job. In my view, you should go into the job being in the best shape of your life, be it mental health or physical otherwise, because you need to deliver and help that minister deliver. And it doesn't matter what political party you're with. And is it frustrating if your advice is not followed? It can, it can be, but I think if you realize that 
you realize who the decision maker is. The minister is the decision maker or cabinet is the decision maker. The premier is the decision maker. And if you, you, know, you understand that the, uh, the role of the public service, it shouldn't be too, too... Uh, you know, too upsetting. And quite frankly, uh, it's the minister who goes grocery shopping on the weekend and hears from the people about this or that, not so much the public servants. And it's the minister who has a whole perspective on things. So usually you give the minister an array of options and pros and cons of each option, knowing that every one of those options is viable and they'll put it through their sort of permutations and combinations and and figure out what is in the public interest. I think all of what Tom said is bang on. And, you know, I'd maybe add to that by offering the perspective, particularly in a small province, like you would not always have a lawyer that is um, the minister of justice in particular. They might not always necessarily have a lawyer as the deputy either, which would be probably a little dangerous. But um, in any, well, uh, I think uh, on Prince Edward Island right now, the, the deputy is not a lawyer. So um, now she would be somebody that has extensive experience. Uh, actually, that person just moved on, but previous uh, deputy, uh, she would have had extensive experience, particularly in the criminal justice system. So, I mean, you know, you can make it work. Um, you know, I think your question started out with that, you know, where's the line in the sand, um, you know, between the executive branch and the political branch of government and how does the you know the minister of justice slash ag kind of walk that line in those in those kind of scenarios and you know i think this is really what lawyers do this is how lawyers make their money is that you firstly need to identify where the line is and you know as Tom says you don't you're not you don't try to bend the law um, but what you like very definitively where we make our money as lawyers is that we try and figure out solutions where there are roadblocks. And if you can't get your I mean, there's not always going to be a solution, but if you can't get your client to a place where they are prepared to kind of hear a solution or listen to you or whatever, then maybe in some way you're not totally doing your job. And so in that way, I would say that a big part of walking that line between uh, being the AG and Minister of Justice is figuring out where's the line and what do I need to do What in my role as a leader uh, in this area, uh, sitting around the cabinet table, what do I need to do to convey to my cabinet colleagues where that line is and how we can, like if there's a problem, how we can deal with the problem not how we can, you know, get ourselves into corners and figure out legally what positions we could find ourselves defaulting to. And, you know, I think typically where things have gone wrong, that's been what's happened is that uh, uh, parties have kind of um, maybe say egos get in the way uh, from time to time and parties draw their lines in the sand, uh, irrespective of where the line may be. And they're not really willing to move off of that and, and work towards a more solution-oriented approach. Um, and, you know, look, bluntly put, I was always of the view, particularly when uh, the, the, the SNC-Lavalin thing was going on, that as elected officials, the public, anyway, it's a bit kind of trite to say it in this way, but I will. They don't, they don't put us here to, 
you know, kind of tell them what the law is or tell them what we can't do. They put us here as leaders to figure out how we can make their life better. Uh, and that's not necessarily to say what happened in the SNC Lavalin situation was right or wrong or whatever. I'm not here to pass judgment on that. But I would have seen my role as Minister of Justice and Attorney General. You know, I'll just give you the example. In, in When the implementation of the decriminalization of uh, marijuana usage came in, uh, I mean, that was a, that happened during my time. It was a pretty controversial time. There were no right or wrong answers, really, uh, with a lot of what had to be done. But you had to give advice to your cabinet colleagues to say, you know, this probably will or will not pass muster. Some of them would have had pretty fundamental and visceral beliefs about what should or should not be able to happen. And you'd have to give them honest, earnest advice to say, well, I hear you. I get that that's a problem, but it may not be that we're just going to not allow people to do that. We may need to figure out a reasonable solution. This is what the Constitution would say if you want to look at an Oaks test approach or whatever, right? And that's kind of how you have to work it, right? And it, it's it's really it. at a time it becomes shuttle diplomacy. You know, what can we do? What can we make work here? And if you can't get to a solution, you know, it's kind of like a mediation. If you can't get to a solution, then you really kind of need to look at what the issues are and where where it's falling apart uh, and kind of pull it back. And, you know, uh, Julia, uh, Jordan's talking about the line, the line between the the political realm and the line between uh, departmental or ministerial realm. You know, sometimes it's said that for deputies, they need to be operationally focused, but politically sensitive, whereas ministers need to be uh, politically uh, focused and operationally uh, sensitive, but there there is a line, there's a bit of a gray area there, but that's the relationship that hopefully you work out uh, with your minister such that she or he trusts you and, and the department, because as George just said, you're going to be dealing with some very hot and topical issues. Maybe it's vaccination. Maybe it's the proper arrangement for a long-term care uh, system in PEI or Yukon and all the legal elements that go into that. Maybe it's cannabis, as Jordan mentioned. Maybe it's uh, made, medical assistant dying. You're going to deal with some pretty complex issues where there's a variety, as Jordan says, solutions. And then each each minister and each government has to decide what's best for the people of that jurisdiction. And so that that relationship between the deputy and the AG is a uh, critical one. If you're going to weave your way through some of those some of those issues, because, you know, your minister is going to be uh, working the boards on on his or her side of the fence, as Jordan says, shuttle diplomacy. One I always found a time, I don't know how often you deal with these. I had a few pretty high profile ones in my time. Directed indictments. Uh, the minister could direct an indictment. And, um, you know, really what that is, is, uh, you know, there, there, it's a, there's an indictable offense and somebody says, uh, um, you know, well, I'd like to go through a prelim. And uh, effectively, the minister says, no, we're not going to do that because that's just, you know, going to make a bit of a mockery of the system. So despite the rights that you, you know, probably have, I'm going to trump those and I'm going to say, no, you're not getting that privilege. And, um, I found those tough, you know, you're in a certain way, you're judge, jury and executioner, at least of a, a part of the process um, with it. You know, you have a large piece of the facts, but probably not enough to comfortably uh, or definitively say where the outcome of something may be. And, uh, 
Um, I, I wrestled a lot with those few that I had that, uh, um, you know, were, were really kind of a tough role, I thought, to, to expect of somebody. And that's coming from somebody that had a, enough criminal law experience to be dangerous. Um, but if you didn't have that background, it would be super tough. You had to be like very tight with your deputy and those that may be giving you advice on it. Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. Yeah. And when I hear you talk, I really like to know because I hear you talk and it seems to be a very interesting job and you seem passionate. But I also, you know, you get to be leaders in a very, it's a stressful position because, you know, you need to find the best position. There's no, we know there's no black and white in law, even less I feel like in your, uh, in your position, there's a lot of gray areas and, and you, you need to also to even deal sometime with people's ego, people's personality. So there's so many things going on. And I would say my last question would be like, how do you manage, you know, to keep your good mental health and to, to keep you away from having too much stress? And uh, because we've talked a lot about this in, a, in other podcasts, and I really like to know how you manage to deal with the, the position that you have that seem very demanding, but also very interesting. So that would be my last question, if you're willing to answer. <laughs> Tom, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, that, that's a... Um... Uh, a very important uh, question because these are stressful jobs and uh, particularly for ministers, uh, it's a 24-7 job. And, and, and to be fair to deputies, uh, you go to bed at night checking your messages before you go to bed. And when you wake up in the morning, one of the first things you're doing is looking at your messages. And uh, it, it and as a minister, it seems like uh, uh, that uh, at least here in the Yukon, there's, there's just constant, I'm sure it's no different in PEI, constant demands on their time, seven days a week, some Some things pleasant and other, most things pleasant and some things maybe not so pleasant. Yeah, they're just the, the toll on, on, on your, on your body physically, mentally, psychologically, it, it is a real thing. And I'll have to say, I recognize it more now than I did when I was uh, working at that level. But uh, the thing that always uh, saved me is uh, uh, physical activity, making sure that I was physically active on a daily basis. So for instance, uh, it could be as simple as instead of driving my car to work, riding my bike to work. And the time I had a nine kilometer commute. Uh, so I would, I'd say, well, on Mondays, I'm going to ride my bike to and from work. Who knows what the rest of the week, whether it even allow that, but doing something physically active, you know, maybe it's walking at lunchtime, maybe it's going to the gym right after work, but doing something that uh, allows your, your mind and your body to sort of just take, uh, to be refreshed. And so that's what has always worked and still works for me. Uh, uh, you know, I've always played in one of the local hockey leagues and that's a nice break because I love it. You know, going into the dressing room, nobody on the team really cares what you do during the day. I mean, they might, if you were the premier, we used to have the premier who would referee our hockey games, but, uh, but nobody really cares. It's more like, okay, uh, how are we going to play tonight? So having distractions, whatever they mean, it could be meditation, But giving yourself that time, allowing yourself that time to do what you need to do to stay well. And uh, I know what worked for me. And as I say, it was if, if my legs were moving and my heart rate was up, that was it. that was uh, that was a good antidote. And, you know, look, I think a lot of those same things applied for me. I will say um, 
it, there is, to a certain degree, it's different strokes for different folks, and each person needs to figure that out for themselves. Um, I'm fairly extroverted, and so I know one thing that I really like to do um, would be if there was something really tough going on, and you could talk about it with somebody else, you'd figure out who you could talk about it with and, uh, and talk. Um, and I found, you know, usually if you, you know, something hit you in the guts in the afternoon, by the time you were going to bed, you could have talked yourself down off a ledge um, and you'd sleep that much better over it uh, that evening. You knew it was a really tough problem if you uh, had a worse pang in your gut when you woke up the next morning and you realized that you had to face it again that day. Um, but those days weren't that frequent. And so I will say to um, I actually get out of it when COVID hit, but uh, uh, get into CrossFit uh, during that time. And as Tom says, I mean, that was primarily a release where uh, both the kind of group atmosphere plus the uh, extreme elevation and heart rate meant you didn't have too much time to think about uh, uh, what your problems were at work or wherever. Um, and, you know, you could really uh, decompress a certain uh, bit and kind of go from there. Um, and, you know, the, the final thing that I will say, particularly for young lawyers, that you have to be conscious of and everybody struggles to figure out, I think, uh, for the first bit of time is when you're going through that, we'll say, change in stages in life, um, that you figure out what your boundaries are between work related things and your family. And I, I confess that I'm not awesome at that. Um, and uh you know, it's something that uh, my wife will often uh, remind me of and keep me in check on. She will usually uh, very quickly remind me if I'm line stepping in terms of the boundaries there. Um, but, you know, like the very real piece of this is that, you know, you really only get one go at things. And um, I read uh, again just recently that uh, uh, there's a anyway, a quote, and I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it's something along the lines of, I think it's actually a Warren Buffett quote. Um, there are very few people that on their deathbed would say they wish they put more time in at the office. Um, and, uh, you know, so, I mean, I'm the kind of person that um, I like to, you know, I don't mind kind of getting my heart rate up at the office and getting engaged in an issue, but you need to also know how you can kind of let it go and not take that home and have it in. I have a 10 year old and eight year old at home. And in addition to the relationship I have with my wife, you know, we all lead stressful lives. And if you start taking the office home, your family life and your reputation with your family and your kids and your community, which are all important, uh, you know, in terms of your professional life will suffer. And so I think you, for your own good, need to figure that out at an early stage. And I think there are lots of people that will help, whether it's through a mentorship role. CBA's got some great programs now. Uh, I know through our office, we have some great programs, and, and that's not unique. I'd say most workplaces these days uh, are gearing themselves that way. And so, you know, you just need to figure out what works for you, and you need to be deliberate about it. It's not always easy to get to the gym. It's not always easy to put the phone away when you're with your family, but you need to figure it out. You need to be pretty good to make it a priority. Thank you very much, both of you. It was very interesting. We went like in so many places. It was a very, very interesting podcast. And I think our listeners will just love it. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity. Thank you, uh, Julia. And uh, Jordan, we'll see you next month in Ottawa at a CBA meeting. Yeah.
Thank you so much. Thank you to our two every lawyers, Tom Ulliet and Jordan Brown. Applications are still open, but not for long. You have time until the 31st of May 2023 to join a CBA National Section Executive. And as you've seen on this podcast, this is quite awesome. And finally, do please feel free to reach out to us anytime at podcast at cba.org. Thank you. Have a great day. And on that note, time is running out, so I better get going.